Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we're going to be finding out why not all wildflower meadows are a good thing. Hearing from someone who managed to find 10 flowers in bloom in one of the most miserable winter weeks of this year and going on a herbology hunt with a five-year-old. First up, when a lot of people think of wildflowers, the first thing they often imagine is one of those bright pictorial meadows of poppies, cornflowers and daisies that someone went to the pains of sowing. But that's not a true wildflower meadow, and many of those so-called wildflower mixes that you can buy in the shops contain non-native species too. Trevor Dines is the botanical expert at Plant Life, which has been campaigning to keep the wild in wildflower. And so I asked him what was so bad about these pretty meadows anyway. So what's wrong with pictorial meadows that are sown by councils or individuals that contain packets of wildflower seed, Trevor? Yeah, I think in urban situation, in a town, in a village on roundabouts and things like that, they're absolutely fine. You know, there are no wildflowers in the soiled seed bank. There's no other opportunity to get wildflowers into these environments anymore. So using them there is okay. The biggest problem, though, is that I think it really gives people a sort of unrealistic expectation of what wildflowers are all about. So people see these wonderful colourful annuals, species coming from all over the country, you know, you often get uh, American, North American taxa in there and people then expect that is what our countryside should look like as well. So it's this shift in perception and shift in understanding of what our wild flora is like. And I must say, I saw on social media, you scan images coming in through the summer on social media, and you see people, there was one earlier this year from Dorset, and uh, somebody put up a picture of a farmer's field that had been sown with one of these mixtures, and yeah, there was cosmos flowering in there. That, <laughs> Which yeah, is that, not that, a wildflower. Definitely not a wildflower, but the caption was, look at this fantastic, beautiful display of, of wildflowers uh, we want more of this and it got a huge response yeah, everybody said yeah this is fantastic and I was crying at the image because it was just so far removed from anything that we get in the wild so that's the main problem from a sort of practical and conservation point of view also in towns and cities you know, a lot of councils are now realising and we're doing a lot of work with many of them realising that these mixtures are actually very very high maintenance and very expensive so you have to sow these things every year, you have to cultivate the soil, you have to sow them each year and manage their appearance each year. And people are now starting to realise that a better alternative, a more sustainable alternative and a cheaper alternative is to go back to our wild roots and put in a, a mixture of, of perennial plants, of perennial native meadow species, so oxidases, you know, all those meadow plants that, that we really like. And people, councils are now starting to move towards this and realising that that's a more sustainable way of doing it. It supports a much wider range of, of wildlife because... A lot of these plants, our native meadow species, for example, are obviously food plants. Uh, it's not just about pollination. They're food plants for lots of other uh, invertebrates as well. So, yeah, I always quote common bird's foot trefoil as being a food plant for over 130 species of, of invertebrates. And, that, yeah, that, that's a fantastic resource for them. If we're planting that on our roundabouts and, and road verges in villages and places like that, then that'll do an awful lot more than some ghastly mixture. I find them ghastly, this sort of bright, ghastly, garish mixture of non-native species. And yet those mixes are perhaps more similar to the sort of Britain in bloom 
ethos that a lot of councils adopt where they've got lots of personally i think they're fabulous these fabulous hanging baskets full of all sorts of brightly colored plants and then the contrast between that and i suppose a a natural english native meadow might seem like a bit of an anti-climax to people who aren't into flowers i mean to me it's obviously delightful but but i'm a bit of a nerd Absolutely. And the other problem, of course, is that a a meadow mixture will need mowing. It'll need cutting, you know, preferably leave that as late as possible into August, September to do that. But then it's cut down and you've just left with a patch of grass, which looks a bit awful for a few months. Whereas some of these late flowering, particularly North American taxa, can carry on going up until the first frost. So it's about having a mixture of the two. It's about using those really bright, colourful displays where we can, but also, but not saying that that is, that that is it. And you know, our role at Plant Life you know, is raising awareness of, of these issues and trying to encourage people to use more native flowers and more native planting than we can. And interestingly, there's a lot of work being done at the moment on pollination and where are, uh, yeah, okay, we're looking at at honeybees here but where honeybees are foraging their pollen from and uh, the National Botanic Garden of Wales did a lot of research looking at the DNA profile of honey so actually where are the bees actually going to forage within the National Botanic Garden of Wales they had over 900 sort of taxa from all over the world in flower in early spring but the honeybees it turns out were foraging on willows oaks holly dandelions bluebells you know they were going to that that sort of woodland hedgerow selection of species for their resources rather than this sort of cornucopia of of amazing flowers so we need to look at and remember that although we might see pollinators and honeybees and and things on these garden plants that are really bright and colorful and showy 60,000 bees in the colony are not necessarily coming down to our little little patch of of colourful non-native flowers. So there's a lot of work to do there in in terms of understanding where our resource is actually needed. Obviously, in that situation where you've got a food plant, a caterpillar larval food plant, as well as a pollinator resource, then that's what we should be really trying to encourage. Is there also a problem, not so much in urban centres, but where wildflower mixes are being used in semi-rural or rural settings of an upset to the local ecosystem or a genetic problem even with non-native plants being introduced into the into the mix of wildflowers locally or is that not really a problem it is a problem and this is really where we developed this policy at plant life uh, which is called keeping the wild in wildflower and for me I'll go back to that arable example of cosmos in, in the cornfield, if you like. Time and time again now, we see people planting what I've called a natural five. So in cornfields, and farmers are getting paid to do this, putting in a mixture of common poppy, cornflower, corn marigold, corn cockle and corn chamomile. Those five species, which are selected because they look fantastic and they're really colourful and they're, they're really attractive wildflowers. Who wouldn't want those in their cornfields and parks and gardens? But that community of plants, that mixture, those five species, never ever occur in the wild in Britain anywhere. They just don't. What, together um, they don't so occur? That's right. Not a, a genuine community of plants. Yeah, I grew up in Hampshire, so uh, yeah, my dad was an arable farmer down there and uh, yeah, our fields down there were full of 
prickly poppies, dead flowered fumitory and things like Venus's looking glass, some really wonderful wildflowers that were very distinct to the thin chalk soils down there. I now live in northwest Wales and we get very different things. We get annual now, weasel snout and, and small flowered catchfly and it's a very, very different flora. It's about a community of plants. And I think this is what the whole of this keeping the wild and wildflower is about. It's about being genuine and respectful to those communities of plants and saying, look, if we've got an opportunity to restore a habitat, to restore wildlife, and you know, it might be a desire to increase a, a native butterfly or bird that feeds on these seeds, then let's respect that community of plants that has supported them for thousands of years and put that in place and try and encourage that through things like natural regeneration, natural spread and natural seeding before reaching for, for the packet of seed. And that's what it's really about. Or that there's some new evidence coming out, rather, that, that shows that if we're taking species from different parts of the range, so maybe from southern Europe or even from southern England, and moving them around, they often hang on to their flowering time, if you like, for example. So the phenology of these species shifts so that you get a plant flowering in a community, in a site, out of sync with its local pollinators. And that's a real issue then when that habitat is put under stress and under pressure from things like climate change. We start to see this untangling of, of that sort of complex food chain, food web that's in place that helps these things to support each other. I often see wildflower meadows sown with a mixture of plants and we know that there's a sort of forage form of common bird's foot trefoil put in there. It's a big thing, it's an upright thing, it flowers for longer, it flowers in a different way and we've got no idea how that interacts then with the pollinators and the food, you know, it, does it serve as a food plant for, the, for these our native species that are feeding on them. So there are some real genetic issues there and, and that for me is the heart of it. It's about restoring our native, natural, ancient communities through other processes first, considering them first before reaching for a packet of seed. So if someone listening is a farmer or from a council or an individual who wants a wildflower meadow in their garden what can they actually do because when I was a teenager I tried to set up a wildflower meadow in my parents back garden and if I'm honest it just looked like a lot of long grass and I got a bit bored <laughs> so what can people do just to look look as though they haven't forgotten to mow the lawn for instance yeah in a garden setting it's entirely different situation i think get yourself a, a really good mixture of, of of any wildflower seed off the shelf from a seed company i mean there's some really good seed companies around emma's gate uh, scotia seeds habitat aid people like this have got some really fantastic mixtures of uh, of wildflowers that you can use to get a patch of meadow going in in your garden um, and they're all native wildflowers are they Yes, from those suppliers, they've got really good at making sure that they're at least native wildflowers. And I think in a garden setting, it doesn't really matter what you're using. I think the key to it is preparing the site first in a garden. So stripping away that really fertile topsoil to begin with, uh, sowing a very a herb-rich mixture rather than a grass-mixed mixture in a garden and then absolutely essential into all of this would be yellow rattle you've got to have yellow rattle to keep on top of the so make sure you've got that in what there, does in yellow there rattle first. do yellow rattles unusual because it's an annual so there aren't many annuals that live in wildflower meadows it germinates in the spring 
spring around sort of February, March time, very early. And then as it grows, its roots tap down into, into the roots of other plants growing around it. Mostly grasses, but also species of pea and daisy as well. So it taps into other plants, but it preferentially hosts on grasses. And it reduces their growth by about 60% or up to about 60%. So I've got a wildflower meadow at home that we're creating at the moment. And you can literally see patches where they're dense with yellow rattle. It's gone bonkers this year, uh, or last year rather. And you can see there that the grasses in, in those patches are, are literally you know, thin and open and sparse. They're not flowering. They're, they're just not growing. So it's a semi-parasite on, on these grasses. And what that does then is, is make room for these herbs species to move into and to seed and, and, and to grow so you get much more species. There's, there's actually a direct correlation between the number of yellow rattle plants uh, in a meter square in a meadow and the number of, of herbaceous species growing in, in there as well. So yellow rattle we call it the meadow maker it really is the, the key species in any meadow and I wouldn't create a meadow anywhere in the countryside or, or in a garden without using rattle. Out in the countryside, it's a different issue. And what we're looking at, so if we were advising a farmer or a council with, with a large area of land sort of in a, in a wild situation, then we're looking at some really exciting uh, ways of bringing meadows back into, into our landscape. And this is through what we're calling natural seeding techniques. So what we're doing now is looking at these ancient fragments of meadow that exist. So some of our best and, and, and most species rich meadows around the countryside and using those as our source of seed so you can take uh, a crop of fresh green hay from those fields and take them to a new site or you can do uh, what's called brush harvesting which is taking a little machine around on the back of a an ATV and it sort of strips the seeds out of all the grasses and flowers that are there and then you take that and use that. It's almost like a, a, you know, a gift from one meadow to a new meadow to create this new meadow nearby. And what that does is you get many more species coming along in the first place. So you get a much broader community being established. And it also helps preserve that sort of local identity of, uh, of these meadows and their genetic diversity as well. So if I go to a meadow where I live up in Conway, it looks very different to a meadow that I might find in Herefordshire. So this local identity is really important and something that these natural seeding techniques can restore. And at Plant Life, we've got two projects running, Coronation Meadows and Saving Our Magnificent Meadows. And in the last five years, we've restored nearly 16,000 acres of meadow across the country using green seeding and, and brush harvested seed and getting good management back in place and that's the way that we need to bring a lot of this colour back into the countryside in that in that wild situation. Do you think there's a problem that the British don't really have a cultural love of British wildflowers? There are other countries like Slovenia for instance where they have wildflower festivals whereas we don't... Yeah by and large seem to know what our wildflowers look like which is exemplified in the fact that we think that things like californian poppy for instance are native when they pop up in wildflower seed mixes and so how do we overcome that cultural problem that actually brits don't really know their own flora 
You're absolutely right. And I've been trying to work out why and when and how did we lose that connection. And other countries, like you say, Slovenia haven't. And I think it's to do with that agricultural intensification. So it's that this sort of happened after the uh, Second World War in particular. So the last sort of 50 years, years or so. And I think the problem is that the loss of flowers from the countryside has been very gradual. So we've got this sort of, it's called shifting baseline theory, where every few years what we think is normal changes. And so we see this gradual loss of, of colour from the countryside, a disengagement with our plants. And you're absolutely right, we, we, we've lost a lot of that, that cultural connection. It's still there. I mean, you know, if you haven't got that wonderful Flora Britannica book by Richard, maybe rush out and buy it straight away because it, it's a real minefield of those cultural connections and folklore you know sort of relationship that we had with our flora years ago how we get that back i think is is a really exciting challenge you know i think we're actually starting to turn the tide a little bit in that things like wildflower hour on social media that's an absolutely fantastic way to start engaging people um plant life last year did uh, had launched the great british wildflower hunt where we're just asking people just to go out, try and find the really common species around them. We did a bit of YouGov polling for that last year and found that it was 4% of 11 to 24-year-olds knew what red clover was or could name red clover. And yet red clover is one of our most common flowers. And it's just getting people out there and giving them a little bit of help and a little bit of confidence to look down at their feet and say, all right, OK, that's, that's white clover and that's red clover. And if we can do that through a whole generation, then we start opening up that exciting cornucopia of, of folklore that's there. So through the Great British Wildflower Hunt, it's about telling those stories and about those cultural connections, but also just getting people to reach out and look and see what's around them. And, and I get really, really excited about that sort of thing. I've been involved in botany for many, many years. I love our, our rarest plants. I really love looking for the rare thing. But yeah, what really gives me the most pleasure is when my five-year-old niece looks for the first time at an oxide daisy and can then name it and, and knows that, that that is an oxide daisy. That gives, me, that gives me real hope for the future if we can do things like that. That was Trevor Dines from Plant Life. Next, over the winter, we have been running a special weekly challenge on Wildflower Hour called the Winter 10. It asks you to find 10 wildflowers in bloom each week, and it's been amazing how many of you have managed this in the coldest and most inhospitable weeks of the year. Venetia Barrington is one Wildflower Hour member who has been surprised by how much she has been able to find in flower, and she tells her Winter 10 story now. Hi, my name's Venetia, and I have been asked by Wildflower Hour to talk about the Winter 10 Challenge. When Wildflower Hour announced the Winter 10 Challenge back in October, I have to admit I had my doubts. I wasn't at all convinced that I would be able to find that many wildflowers over the whole winter, let alone every week. Perhaps I could manage to find three wildflowers, but ten? I have always loved flowers and I am a keen gardener, but it was only in May last year when I received a camera for my birthday that my knowledge of them really began to develop. The folklore and history of plants fascinates me. So I decided to start making photographic records of those that I came across so that I could identify and then research them. As summer passed into autumn, the flowers began to dwindle away and I began to wonder whether this was the end of my photography until spring. How wrong could I be? The Wildflower Hour Challenge came just at the right time 
and inspired me to don my wellies, woolly hat and gloves and carry on searching. After all, these botanists know a thing or two about wildflowers and if they say it's possible to find 10 wildflowers every week, then it must be so. I started my search locally around the village where I live in Bedfordshire. Week one, which preceded wildflower hour on Sunday, October the 29th, was not at all difficult. Many summer wildflowers were still in bloom and that week dog roses, campion, borage and bramble flowers were included in my finds. The following week I came across a large area of old arable land that has been turned over for building work in Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire. It was covered in a mass of poppies, wild radish, wild turnip and scented mayweed. I also discovered that Milton Keynes roundabouts are great habitats for wildflowers. Sadly, and for obvious reasons, I was unable to photograph them though. For anyone listening who doesn't know Milton Keynes, it is famous for its roundabouts and also for its concrete cows. Week four, I visited the lovely gardens at Woburn Abbey. There weren't a huge number of wildflowers there at this time of year, but I did find some ivy-leaved toad flax, periwinkle and feverfew to add to my collection. One of my favourite weeks was when I visited the Forest Centre in Marsden Mortain, Bedfordshire, where a verge along the entrance had been sown with a wildflower mix of corn cockles, corn marigolds, cornflowers and oxide daisies. It was a beautiful sight to behold, with its mixture of pinks, yellows, blues and whites. Things became a little trickier in mid-December, as during week eight of the challenge, many parts of the country, including Bedfordshire, had some significant snowfall. It was interesting to see how this affected the wildflowers. The bramble flowers pretty much disappeared overnight, along with the campion and late flowering poppies. And I think this was when the real challenge started for me. The following few weeks were busy with Christmas rapidly approaching, followed by the New Year celebrations, but I did manage to find my winter 10 nevertheless. It was beginning to become clear at this point that there are a definite winter stalwarts here in Bedfordshire, some wildflowers look as fresh as a daisy, including the daisies themselves, of course. Red dead nettle, white dead nettle, shepherd's purse, chickweed, groundsel, periwinkle, scented mayweed, hogweed and dandelions are a few of those stalwarts. Yarrow and ragwort have tried their best, but the few blooms I have found recently are looking rather worse for wear now. I now look back and ask myself, what has doing the Winter 10 Challenge taught me? The answer is a lot. I am amazed at how many wildflowers you can find blooming over the winter in my locality alone, not to mention all the others I see on Wildflower Hour every Sunday evening from all around the UK. So thank you, Wildflower Hour, for setting this challenge and encouraging us all to get out there and celebrate those hardy wildflowers, the unsung heroes of the wintertime. Thanks, Venetia. And you've all got until the end of February to keep hunting for winter flowers. If you find 10, just tweet them with the hashtag TheWinter10. There's also a post on our website featuring more people who've managed to complete the Winter 10. Just go to wildflowerhour.co.uk. Finally, it's not just adults who've been hunting for wildflowers. The junior section of Wildflower Hour, Herbology Hunt, has seen children and teenagers challenging around outside with their January spotter sheet to try to find the five flowers for this month. Adam Cormack from the Wildlife Trusts took his five-year-old daughter, Chesson, out on a herbology hunt, and this is what they found. We're outside Morrison's and we're going on a herbology hunt. That's right, we're outside Morrison's in Grantham and we're going to go on a herbology hunt. And can you remember the flowers that we're looking for? Leopards, 
Shepherd's purse. Shepherd's purse. Although a leopard's purse would be quite cool, wouldn't it? Daisy. The what? Brownsel. Brownsel and chickweed. Chickweed. And then what's the spiky one that has yellow flowers? Brownsel. At the other very spiky one with yellow flowers. Gorse. Gorse, yep. Okay, let's go. Okay, so I'm here with Chesson, and Chesson, what have we found on the floor here? Chickweed. Chickweed. Chickweed, that's right. And how do you know it's chickweed? Because it's got white petals and tiny leaves. And what kind of shape do they make? Yeah, like a little star shape, a tiny little white fairy star. And where are we at the moment? What can you see all around you? Describe what you can see. Concrete, moss, weeds and snow. Concrete, moss, weeds and snow. That is a quite a good description, actually. So where, where are we? Are we in the countryside or the town? Town. The town, yeah, we're just round the corner from next in Grantham, aren't we? And there's snow on the ground, and we're crouching down behind a wheelie bin, and we're looking at chickweed. And why are we looking for chickweed? Because it's on the herbology hunt chart. It is on the herbology hunt chart, isn't it? So should we go and see if we can find some more flowers? Yeah, yes. Okay, Chess, and what have we found now then? Groundsel. Groundsel, and how do you know it's groundsel? This, it's got yellow flowers. Little yellow flowers. Can you describe anything else about the plant? What does it look like? The sting stuff. A sting stuff. Do you think it's a bit spiky, isn't it? Almost. When you step, the stuff that when you step on it, it stings you. Do you mean like a stinging nettle? Or a thistle. A thistle. A thistle. I know what you mean. It does look a bit thistly and spiky, doesn't it? It's actually not really very spiky to touch, but it does look a bit spiky. And what, what can you see around you? What kind of place is this plant growing? In stones. It is growing in stones, isn't it? And what else? What's it by? A wall and lots of other weeds. It is, yes, by a wall. Walls are a good place to look for wildflowers in the winter, aren't they? Yes. So they can kind of grow in there undisturbed. It's a pretty little plant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, should we go and see if we can find any others? Yes. Okay, so where are we now, Chesson? In the cafe. Yeah, we're having a little break, aren't we? Because it's very cold outside. And so, why do you enjoy looking for wildflowers? Because you can... It's like hunting for new stuff. It is like hunting for new stuff, isn't it? A bit like hunting for treasure. You never quite know what you're going to find, do you? And what's your favourite kind of flowers? Um, the stuff that... What are they called? What are they called? What do they look like? Describe the flower you're thinking. Fox, fox. Gloves. Fox gloves, yeah, they're brilliant flowers, aren't they? They grow a bit later in the year. They're like, they're like fox gloves. Oh, another flower that's like a fox glove. Well, I wonder what that could be. Do you mean like orchids or something, maybe? 
It's an orchid. Yeah, maybe. Some of the orchids. Oh, they're kind of purple, aren't they? And quite tall. Okay, should we go and see what else we can find? Yes. What other, can you remember what other flowers we're looking for? A daisy. Yeah. And, uh... There was something else, wasn't there? What is... It's spiky bush, isn't it, with yellow flowers on it? Gorse. Gorse, yes. I'm not sure if we'll find any gorse in downtown Grantham, but we'll have a look. Okay, so I think this is probably our last wildflower of the day. And what one is this, Chesson? Gorse. Gorse. And how do you know it's gorse? Because it's got yellow flowers and it's very spiky. That is right. And what do you like about gorse? What do you know about it? You can eat it. Do you like eating it? It's quite bitter. It's quite bitter? Well, yeah, probably. And do you remember what gorse smells of in the summer? On like a hot, sunny day? Honey? Yeah, kind of honey, coconutty kind of smell, isn't it? It's lovely. And where, where did we find this gorse? Where was it? In a forest. In a forest, yeah. Kind of on the edge of one, isn't it? And I think it's probably going to be our last wildflower for today, isn't it? You're going to say goodbye? Bye! You've still got a few more days to complete the January spotter sheet, but please upload pictures of what you and your children have found together on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Herbology Hunt or post in the Herbology Hunt Facebook group. And that's all for this episode. Wildflower Hour promotes and works with Plant Life, the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, the Wildflower Society and the Wildlife Trusts. You don't need to know anything about wildflowers to join in. You just need to look for some. And when you've found them, post your pictures on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook between 8 and 9pm on a Sunday using the hashtag wildflowerhour. I'll be back with another episode in a fortnight's time. Thanks for listening.